It's fun to be here with you this morning. I feel very honored to uh, be here at Journey Church International, and uh, it's been fun to get to know Christian even better these past few months and be able to spend time with him. So it's a real joy to be here with you. So thank you very much for having me. Just, uh, just recently, I had a chance to preach at a church in Atlanta, and afterwards, there was a group of people that were anxious to share with me kind of their role in the church and what they do in the church. And so there was a woman there, and I said, you know, what's your job in the church? And she said, I work with the youth and just love doing that. And there's a man, he said, I'm involved with the nursery, actually, and I love the chance to help these kids. And so I was just hearing these roles in the church. And there was an older gentleman, um, very gray hair and a big beard, and he was in the back, and I could tell that he was anxious to share with me his job in the church. I said, sir, what's your role in the church? He said, I'll tell you my role in the church. If anybody messes with my pastor, I'll kill him. And I said, I love you. Every church needs somebody like that. Every church needs that person who says, you know what? I'm the champion of my pastor. Do not mess with my pastor. I'll get you. Let me just tell you something. I had the chance to go all over the country and work with with a lot of pastors. I would guess that you know this, but just in case you don't, you are immensely blessed here. You are immensely blessed here with a strong pastor, with, with very strong leadership, you need to be thankful for them. Every pastor I have ever worked with has got strengths and weaknesses. And one of your main jobs is to magnify their strengths and then to help them in the areas in which they are weak. But I trust that you would really be champions for your church and for your pastors, knowing that God has blessed you here with tremendous leadership. So before we jump into the rest of this text, and I'm very excited about this, I'm also excited to know that sign there in the back, 10 weeks to a brand new you, knowing that this is the last week of the series, and if you don't have a brand new you yet, there's tremendous pressure on me today to, it's almost like, hey, this is it. You know, if you want a brand new you, this is week 10, but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will move in a great way, and we're going to be able to just see him work. So let's pray together, then we're going to jump into some more things here. Heavenly Father, we know that we need you. We are not here to hear man's wisdom. We are not here to hear from me. We are here to hear uh, from you. We are asking by your Holy Spirit that you would speak deeply to our hearts, that you would open up our minds, and that you would allow us to grasp a little bit more of the truth of the gospel. And Father, I do pray that this day would be a little bit more of that process of losing our religion and grasping more of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. So, Father, be glorified in this time. May your name be lifted high. May your kingdom be advanced. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's really a foundation of our belief. And I just want to hit some real basics here. And if you hit the basics, this is probably as basic as it gets. So if you want to know the message of the Bible, here it is in just four brief statements. At creation, God gave it all. In the garden through sin, we lost it all. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid it all. So ultimately, when we are with Jesus, we get it all. That's interesting. You might think that that sounds very basic, but a lot of people push back against that because they don't like that one statement that we lost it all. Most people would say, well, you know, I feel more comfortable saying that we lost a lot. But keep in mind that if you say that we lost a lot, then that means that Jesus paid a lot, but he did not pay at all. And the gap then between what you think that Jesus had to pay and what you need to then make up on your own, that little gap right there, that is man's religion. And this series, I love the name of this series, Losing 
our religion. Because there is that gap that so many people think, well, I'm just not convinced that we lost it all. So I think that we lost a lot. I think that Jesus paid a lot. I think that I have to do a great deal to make up that gap. And therefore, ultimately, I will you know, get everything. But that gap there strangles people. It holds them very tightly in their grip. And I've learned that if we hold on to those things, if we think that we can make life work because of religion, the gospel frees us. Religion strangles us. And anything in life which we have which is ultimately not motivated by the truth of the gospel will ultimately put us into bondage. It's religion. Hard, hard work, thinking, you know, I could just need to do more and more. It doesn't sanctify you. It keeps you prisoner. One thing which I greatly enjoy doing is to take business leaders on a five-day trip to Haiti. I've done this now for about 15 years, and uh, I'll be going back in about two weeks. It'll be my 47th trip there. So I take a lot of business leaders to Haiti and just expose them to just some of the needs of Haiti, and it's a great way for them to just appreciate how much they have. It's interesting. I was there on a trip about a year and a half ago, and I was with a local business leader, and this guy's done extremely well in business, and uh, he had a lot of friends who, who had gone, and he said, well, because all these friends have gone, I think I should go. So he came along on this trip. We had been there for just a few hours, and he said, hey, you know what, Jimmy, could, could I talk to you over here for just a second? I said, sure. He said, you know, I, maybe I just kind of misunderstood this trip, and maybe I just kind of misunderstood the point of the trip, but I just sense that there's a lot of really religious people on this trip, and I just need you to know I'm not really that religious. And I said, whew, that's a relief to know, because you know what? I'm not either. He said, I thought you, I thought you were a pastor. I'm a bit confused. I said, I am a pastor. But I think that religion strangles people. I think that religion is so much of us thinking, here's what I have to do to be right with God, that if we have that mindset, that just creates guilt and shame and it binds people up. But I think that the gospel frees us. He said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. We had a tremendous trip. Actually, after that trip, we started to meet every week. And six months after that trip, he gave his life to Christ. It's been an amazing thing. Now he leads those trips to Haiti. And he has these amazing conversations. It's been fun to see how God has used that to work in that way. So you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of those great, great parts of the Scripture in which Jesus lays forth so many of the basics. And I know that you've been able to walk through some of the great mountain peaks of Scripture because you've been talking through the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to wrap it up today. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to talk through these final words from Jesus. If you Need a Bible? You can get one right there. Just raise your hand and you'll have one. So we're going to look at Matthew 7, starting off in verse 24. It says this, and Jesus is speaking. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because... It had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not at all like their teachers of the law. 
So we're going to look at just three basic points of this passage. We're going to look, look at the fact that there's a wise builder. We're going to look at the fact that then he talks about these different foundations. And then we're going to look at the fact that there is a coming storm. So I love the picture of the fact that this is a wise builder. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, put this, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds, who builds his house upon the rock. In other words, it's not just an you know, enough to hear, but we need to actually put these things in to practice. And this is such a great time to talk about that because this past week we started Lent. And Lent is that preparation time before Easter in which we really start to focus more and more on the person of Jesus Christ and we prepare for Easter. And so Lent is that season in which we kind of draw in and we have that special focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're praying that God would not only speak to our hearts, but that we would be able to act upon these things. It prepares us to consider the cross and what Jesus Christ ultimately had to pay for you. I love the season of Lent because I realize that more and more I do need to really think through the cross. I need to think through exactly what God accomplished graciously for me upon the cross and how much I need what he has done. So I think about, here's what Jesus has done upon the cross. Here's why he had to do what he did did upon the cross. First of all, what did he do for us upon the cross? I'm, I'm very blessed in life because I enjoy sports very much, and I have some friends who are able to get me into some fun sporting events. Maybe that's why Christian and I enjoy each other so much, because I know that he also enjoys sports. Now, I don't want you to be jealous of me or even to hate me, but let me just say, because I have a friend who has a lot of connections, I've been able to go to the Masters Golf Tournament a number of times. Are we okay with each other? All right. I enjoy the Masters. It is absolutely one of the most incredible sporting events I've ever been to, because you've got, in one sense, the nicest, most pristine park you've ever been in in your life, and then there just happens to be a golf course in the midst of this park. I mean, the azaleas, the trees, you've never seen anything like it in person. The smells, it is incredible. So I've been there now enough times with my friend that we kind of have this pattern. We will go and we'll watch a few holes, and then we'll go and we'll camp at the 16th bleachers. We'll always sit very top row, far right. Why? Because we can see the 15th hole the 16th hole, we can see him tee off over here on 17, and then four as it comes right down the hill. So you can actually see four holes. It's a great seat. We enjoy it very much. So I'm there in 2005, and we're watching everybody come through, and we're, we're up there on 16. And so we see, you know, Tiger come through, and Phil come through, and Freddie come through, and all these greats, you know, come through. Now, 16 is an amazing hole. And you might think, well, I don't really know if I know 16 at Augusta. Actually, you do know it. Because it's where the most famous golf shot in history took place. It's where Tiger hit that slow putt in 2005 to win. Remember that slow putt that just rolled and rolled and seemed to stop on the edge of the cup and just, you know, fell in right before it showed that Nike logo, which the Nike people were rejoicing in that. But anyway, that's where that putt took place. It's a par three, there's this, this amazing pond, and it's a tough shot, and, but it's just this pristine hole. So we see all the greats come through. Now, it's interesting, if you win the U.S. Open or at the British Open, you're exempt for 10 years, but if you win the Masters, you're exempt for life, which means you can play in the Masters as long as you're breathing. Now, they encourage you, once you start to play poorly, please don't embarrass yourself, please don't actually embarrass us, and just know that there will 
you know, be, be that time where you just have to stop playing. Billy Casper was playing the year that I was there in 2005. Billy Casper had won the Masters. At this point in life, he's 73. He's not playing terrible, but he's not playing really well. And so they had asked Billy, hey, Billy, you know what? You're at that age where maybe it would be best just to not play in the Masters. He said, no, you know what? I thoroughly enjoy it. I want to play in the Masters. And so there was this little awkwardness of this older gentleman. But you know what? If they, if they play, they want you to be competitive. So they were not exactly sure how this would go. Well, when Billy came to 16, he was not playing well. But still, it's Billy Casper. I mean, it's one of the great golfers of all time. I mean, it's, you know, this guy's a legend. He's won you know, majors and done some amazing things. So he comes up and he hits his first shot, and you're very excited for him until the first shot goes in the water. And you think, oh, just so sad this is Billy Casper. I wish he had done better. And he goes over to the drop zone and hits, at that point, his third shot because of the in fact, he you know, had one in the water, so he lies too. So he hits his third shot in the water. He hits another shot in the water. He hits another shot in the water, hits another shot in the water, hits another shot on the green line. Ten, then at that point, he three putts for a 14. Part three, he has a 14. It was the worst hole in Masters history. He actually was 34 over for the round. He shot 106, which is the worst score in Masters history. He broke almost every Masters record in that one roll. And I mean, it was just amazing in that one roll. Worst front nine, worst back nine, worst overall score, worst hole. And I thought, poor Billy Casper. The next morning, I woke up and I checked the paper just, just to feel bad for him, to just actually confirm all of this. And I realized that his score wasn't there. It wasn't there. And if you go home and if you look up the record books, you will find there is no record whatsoever of that round by Billy Casper. Why? Because at the, because at the end of the, the round, he looked at his scorecard. He said, I don't like this. He didn't sign his scorecard. He was disqualified. If you don't sign your scorecard, it's like it never happened. It's like it doesn't count. And when I saw that, I immediately thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if life was like that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? You have a really rotten day, you have an awful day in your marriage and a rotten day at work, and you go home at the end of the day and you stare at your day and you think, I'm not going to sign the scorecard today. It's like it didn't even count. It's like it didn't even happen. It's like it's just going to go away. Nobody will ever know about this. Or if you have a really great day, you go home and you say, I want to sign that scorecard today. This counts. This was a great day. It didn't count for Billy Casper. It never happens. The thing that amazes me is Jesus Christ signs your scorecard every day. If you're a follower of Jesus, every day he signs your scorecard in his blood and says, I'm going to pay for this day. The consequences, the sin of this day are going to be laid upon myself. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross. He has taken the consequences of our sin. So why do we so desperately need it? Because our hearts are dark, they're sinful, they're evil, and they're wicked. Now you might say, you know what, I, I was with you when you said dark and sinful. I want to agree with that. But when you go to evil and wicked, I, I think that's a little bit too far. 
Maybe for you, but I know not for me. I need the cross of Jesus Christ because I know that my heart is dark, it's evil, and it's wicked. I was recently reminded of how desperately I need the cross, how desperately I need the gospel as opposed to man's religion, how desperately I want to be the man who has wisdom and does the things that God calls me to do and builds my house upon the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of this in this way. My daughter was out in Los Angeles, and she had been there for about a year. She was having a tough time. She lived in a really rough situation. And uh, because of the fact that she could not afford the best thing, she had to live in this area, which might not have been the nicest out there in L.A. And she had a landlord that had been very strong and, hey, we're going to do these things for you and we'll take care of you and we'll make sure you have these types of things to keep you safe. The landlord had not kept a number of his promises. And so, so my daughter Megan would call home and oftentimes in tears and just saying, you know, I just have some real fear about this. And we begin to worry more and more about Megan. And, you know, you had that point where you don't want to be a rescuer as a parent. You want them to grow up and be able to go through some hard things on their own. But at the same time, once, once they start to feel like they're in danger, you just have a little bit of a sense of, I need to go out there and just help. So it came to that point where I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm her dad. I've got to go out there and help. I just have to see if I can do something just to help her because it was just growing worse and worse. And there was some real fear for her safety. So I went out and I met with her landlord in Los Angeles. It took a while to find him that he avoided me, but I found him and we spoke. To say that this is the most unlikable man I have met in the past few years would probably be, uh, that would be like an understatement. Um, I, I, I didn't like this guy. I mean, he came across as sleazy, selfish, all about money, not caring anything about anybody else. And it was a difficult conversation with him. I mean, there was anger welling up within me. And after I spoke with him, I got back, back into my rental car. And I would love to say that because of the fact that I'm, I'm a Christian and that I'm a pastor and I'm trying to walk out the gospel, I got into my car and I felt immediate love for him and I just sat there and I just prayed for him. I wish I could tell you that. I got in my car and honestly, just honest here, I felt hatred towards him. I mean, hatred. I felt racism towards him. He was obviously from the Middle East. And the worst thing about it, the thing that just brought me to tears eventually was it was very clear that he was a Muslim. And there was a little piece of me that said, well, you know what, one day he will get his. And I found joy in that. And after I sat there for about 10 minutes and contemplated this, I called my wife. I just wept with her on the phone. I said, I can't believe how this just exposed the darkness of my heart, the wickedness and the evil of my heart. I desperately need Jesus. You see, if we are wise people that are going to actually live out the truth of the gospel and not be gripped by just religion but live out truth, we have to understand this is what Jesus has done for us and this is why we desperately need it because that is where our hearts are. We need the cross. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, our foundation. He is our rock, our fortress. 
The consequences of my, of my sin have been absorbed by the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't magically disappear. They are literally absorbed. No greater gift has ever been given. And then I'm aware that Jesus talks about these differing foundations. Hey, you know what? You're going to have a choice. You can build your house upon the rock or you can build your house upon the sand. And the house that is built upon the sand, that is the house that is built upon religion. That is the religion of sand, which means that ultimately that will not help you in your most difficult time. You see, you're going to go through some hard times in life, as we'll talk about in just a minute here. There's going to be some difficulties. But I find that so often when we go through hard times, we have this mindset that says, you know what, I'm going through some really hard times. God must be against me. Whoa, all of a sudden I'm going through some really good times. God is really blessing me. But friends, there are hard times in life. There are difficult things that you will go through in life. And if your house is built upon the sand and you start to have that mindset, well, when God is blessing me, I guess that means my house is built upon the rock. And when things are going poorly, I guess my house is built upon the sand. Friends, that is not only pathetic theology, that's what I call sound and music theology. Why do I call it that? I want to be a bit vulnerable with you here. Is that all right? I want to be very open about something. This is a little bit awkward. This is a little bit embarrassing, but you look like a friendly crowd. I'm always nervous when I go to a new small group and they say, hey, let's get to know each other. Let's go around, let's share our name, and let's share our favorite movie. Because I have a choice at that point. Am I going to be honest or am I going to lie? You see, I realize that there are movies that are very acceptable for men to be able to say, what's your favorite movie? Oh, The Matrix or, uh, you know, Gladiator or a Braveheart. Or, you know, there's all these guy movies that, oh, you know, like all the other men are like, yeah, that's one of mine too. That's great. But if I'm really honest, my favorite movie is The Sound of Music. Now, I realize I just lost a lot of men here. The women might like me more, but I lost a lot of men. That's just, I love that movie. It's an incredible story. Just the tension between the captain and Marie and Will they or won't they? And are they in love or are they not in love? And so you have this great story, great music, great dancing. I don't want to go into that too much. But anyway, there's a part of the movie where all of a sudden they realize that they're in love with each other. There's this part of the movie that all of a sudden it dawns upon them, we do love each other. And they're outside and, uh, and they start to just you know, think, oh, this could be it. And they embrace and, and there's this, this openness to love. And then Maria sings... The worst song ever in the history of musicals. Now, my wife has watched this with me enough that she knows that when the song comes up, she's like, Jimmy, deep breaths, it's okay. Walk out of the room, go, go do something, and then come back. Maria sings a song called Something Good. Why do I hate it? Because this is the theology of much of the American church. I practiced all week thinking I could sing it to you, but... It just didn't go well, so I'm just going to share with you the words. Is that all right? All right. Here are the words. Something good. So Maria sings this. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Isn't that the mindset of the American church right there? Hey, things are going really well. I must have done something good. 
Boy, I'm having a terrible week. There must be something in my life. Friends, that's not how the Lord works. You might be in the most difficult time in your life right now, and you might be right in the middle of God's will. Jacob is called home, and for the first time in his life, he obeys. Jacob, for the first time in his life, God, what what, what God clearly says to do, back in Genesis 32, he goes home, and what happens? God meets him and literally beats him up. He's right in the middle of God's will, and he beats him up. By the way, if you're the type who thinks, well, I really struggle believing the word of God because it's written by Christians who have got this agenda, friends, that's why we can believe the word of God. You would never make that up. You would never make up that story. You never think, hey, I really want to convince people that God is, is, you know, the whole story's true, so let's make up a story about this guy that obeys God and God beats him up. You would never make that up. Joseph, obeying God, is in prison in the middle of God's will. You Matthew 14, you've got the disciples in a boat in the midst of a massive storm, and you think, why don't you just turn around and go home? Because Jesus sent them into that storm. They're absolutely in the middle of God's will. You see, we need to stand upon the rock of the gospel. The rock of the gospel is very different. The rock of the gospel says, yeah, we might be in the midst of difficulty, but that's right where God wants me to be. You see, we have religion over here, which is pulling us to be all about our efforts and all about man's efforts. And then you have the gospel grace of Jesus Christ over here that is helping us to understand our lives are transformed by what Jesus Christ has done for us. Religion will make you nice. The gospel will make you new. They're very, very different. Religion will reform you on the outside. The gospel will transform you on the inside. Religion says, I obey, therefore God owes me. The gospel says, I realize what God has done for me, therefore I owe God everything. I had a friend named Jack Miller who was a mentor to me and a great friend. And every time I saw Jack, he would say the exact same thing to me. He would say, hey, Jimmy, cheer up. You're worse than you think but you're more deeply loved by Jesus than you will ever possibly comprehend. That's the gospel. We're worse than we think. We are worse than we will ever admit, but we are more deeply loved by Jesus than we will ever possibly comprehend. Religion is incredibly deceptive. How deceptive is religion? We have to ask ourselves this question. If Satan took over Lee's summit, what would it look like? That's an interesting question, isn't it? If Satan took over Lee's summit, what would Lee's summit look like? You think, well, it would be chaos and crime everywhere, and I mean, it would just be the worst possible thing that you could ever imagine. I would disagree. I think if Satan took over Lee's summit, There would be no crime, no murders, no divorce, no disobedient children. Everybody would embrace religion. The churches would be full, and the gospel would never be preached. George Whitfield said, self-righteousness is the last idol taken out of the human heart. And religion leads us to self-righteousness. Religion leads us to a point where we're trying to do everything we can to think, I want to make this right by everything that I do. 
You see, what's incredible is so often the things that we do that might be good keep us from Jesus as much as those things that might be bad. Because if those things are good, create in us a pride and a self-righteousness and an arrogance that we start to think, I'm okay, that's one of the greatest mistakes that we can possibly make. Thirdly, there's a coming storm in this text. Why is this so important? Because once again, life is full of challenges. There is divorce. There is crime. There are those terrible words, you do have cancer. There are those things that take our breath away that we learn that our children are doing some things which are incredibly stupid. There's unemployment, there's infertility. We could go on and on. So this text tells us that there is rain that will come down. There are streams that will rise. There are winds that will blow. They will beat against your house. You see, there is a storm that will come. There's a verse in Psalm 73 and verse 26 that says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't want to put doubts into your mind about the power of the Word of God. But I will say that I have met with the group that is in charge of the NIV, and they have promised me that in the next edition, that verse will change, because that is one of the worst translations in Scripture. That verse does not say, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That verse says, my heart and my flesh fail. There's no may in there. In other words, you know what? Your heart and your flesh, they will fail. They, it, it's inevitable. There are storms in life. There will things that will beat against you. But even in the midst of that, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. So what is the answer here? How do we know, how do we know that we can really embrace the gospel and lose our religion? What has to take place? My father is from Oklahoma, and so I grew up and spent a lot of time with his family in Oklahoma, and you know that they have a word down there that they use that kind of made me laugh because for a lot of years I didn't know what it meant. And it's just that phrase, your kin, which just is a way to say, you know what, your family. We, we love you and we embrace you because you're family. There are three ways that you can join a family, right? You can join a family by blood. You can join a family by marriage. You can join a family by adoption. I love my family. I'm very blessed to have five children. My son is married. And so I've got these, you know, these amazing kids. I have a great wife. So I love the fact that I've got this picture up of my family and my son's wife, Holly, she has joined our family because she married into our family. Mark, Megan, and Sarah are our children that God blessed my wife and I with those three. Those three are our own children biologically. And then God began to move our hearts in terms of adoption. We began to adopt. And so we have Paige and Allie and they're in our family through adoption. So that means that I have kids that are very, very spread out, which means I probably wasn't that smart, you know, because I'm telling you, they are so far apart. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced I'm the only man in America, this is the honest truth, that in one week saw U2 in concert and the Wiggles in concert in the same week. So I am spread all over the place. But you know, we have brought in our family. So we have a family and I say, these people are in my family through blood. This daughter-in-law, she's in there through marriage, and these two are in our family through adoption. You know how much God wants you to be in his family? Because he has done all three of those things for you. 
You are in the family of God if you trust Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ by his amazing blood, by his shed blood upon the cross. That's what we look forward to in Easter is we're concentrating upon the price that Jesus paid upon the cross. You are his through his shed blood. You are his through marriage. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is the marriage supper in which you are invited into his family. Even men, ultimately, we have to just accept this, we will be the bride of Christ. And then finally, you are a part of his family through adoption. We are told that throughout the scripture, especially Romans chapter 8, that we have that spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Those three things have brought us into God's family. That's how much God cares for us and loves us. Religion is not the thing that we need to hold on to, but it's the truth of the gospel grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We desperately need to lose our religion. I'm reminded of John chapter 8, in which there is a woman who has slept with a man who is not her husband, and she is brought before Jesus. And she's accused by people saying, the law commands us to stone her. Jesus, what do you think? Jesus spends some time on the ground and writes in the dust, and then he straightens up, and he says, woman, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Did he say, hey, you know what? Forsake your sins and I will condemn you no more. He did not say that. That is religion. Did he say, hey, be really good and I'll give you another chance? No, that's just fear. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see, that is the gospel. I would just ask you to bow your heads with me.